Welcome to the Freedom House Church Weekend Message. Today, you'll be hearing an exciting message from a communicator on our teaching team. Whether you're just waking up, on your way to work, or going for a relaxing evening walk, we know this message will equip you to experience Christ's freedom today and every day. So enjoy. Church, I am so glad you are here today. I am so thankful for all of you watching online. We have Georgia, North Carolina, New York, Texas, Pennsylvania, Hawaii, and the Netherlands. I think Pastor Troy was joining the first service. He's in Washington State. Uh, I know Washington State was watching the first service. Uh, For those of you who may be new to Freedom House, I'll kind of explain a little bit how we do things around here. We are not a video venue. We don't just pump somebody in on a video. We like to have a live, fresh word from God. We have speakers at all of our campuses. Uh, My husband actually happens to be in Seattle today speaking because we do not just pastor here. Here in this city, we also pastor around the world. We pastor other pastors, so he is there speaking. We will also be this week in California with a group of pastors. It's very important to us, especially the times that we are living in, that we are on the front lines, that we are engaged with what is going on, and that we are helping the pastors to stand up in their communities. So that's where... He is, Pastor Michael is speaking at our Lake Norman campus, and Pastor Olin is at our South End campus, and so I get to be here with you today as we kick off, man, that was like on cue, as we kick off the book of John. So John, I want to give you a bit of context and history so you understand it's important, I think, when we're reading the Word of God that we understand different things that are significant about the particular books that we are reading. So the book of John, I want to give you some history. I want to talk about some factual things regarding the book of John. So it will help you as you study this entire month as we go through this book, it'll give you some 
some, uh, some more things that'll help you to have revelation and uncover some of the things that you're hearing because context is very important. Who it's being written to is very important. And some of the current events of the day that are happening are extremely important so we understand why John wrote some of the things that he wrote. First of all, I want to kick this off by saying that the John who wrote this is John, the disciple of Jesus. It is not John the Baptist, although John was a disciple of John the Baptist before he was a disciple of Jesus. John was in the inner circle of Jesus. Not only was he one of the 12 disciples, but he was one of the three, one of the closest ones that Jesus hung out with. Uh, He actually had a front row seat to a lot of the things that transpired. When Jesus transfigured on the mountain, it was Peter, James, and John. You see, Peter, James, and John are the three that are the closest in. They are the ones at very significant moments when Jesus told the rest of them to stay. Those are the three that would go along with him. And you even see moments where it's just Jesus and John. And John refers to himself as the disciple in whom Jesus loved. So there's a special connection and a special relationship that we will see play out. In chapters 2 through 12, you see John talking more about the public ministry of Jesus, whereas in chapters 13 through 21, you see John talking more about the private ministry of Jesus that was specifically to the disciples. Now, John wrote his gospel after the fall of Jerusalem. So that means he wrote to a culture that was very tumultuous, where Christians were experiencing severe persecution, not only at the hands of the religious Jewish leaders, but also by the Roman Empire as well. The fall of Jerusalem and the scattering of the church are likely one of the main reasons that spurred John on to write his gospel. He was the last of the four gospels to be written. And because the Jews had been scattered all about, they were disillusioned after the destruction of the temple. So John saw an evangelistic opportunity that he took So he could help many to see that Jesus was, in fact, the Messiah. The differences in purpose between the synoptics, which are the first three Gospels, and John's John's Gospel explain the differences that we see in style and emphasis. John's Gospel is, is more along the lines of telling us who Jesus was, Whereas the other gospels, the synoptics, told us more about what Jesus did and what Jesus said. John wanted us to see who he was, his personhood. John was uh, the son of Zebedee. He had a brother named James, and they were both one of the 12, the original 12. And Jesus nicknamed them the sons of thunder. That was a nickname he gave to them, and I like that because I am one who loves to nickname people. If you are in my inner circle, I have given you a nickname. My husband has a nickname, my kids all have a nickname, and that's the name 
we call them by. So I like the fact that Jesus did that too. John is the second uh, author in the New Testament with the number of books. Paul was first. John comes in at second with five books that he authored. He authored the book of John, and then first, second, third John, and also the book of Revelation. Now, you see differences in the different writers who wrote the New Testament. We studied several different books this summer. And so if you want theology, read Paul, which we did. If you want ethics, read James, which we did. But if you want relational, then you read the book of John, which we are diving into this month. He was actually the last surviving apostle. He uses a lot of imagery in his book, which tell you a lot about his personality. He talks about wind and light and darkness, and he talks about sheep and vines and bread. The four gospels were written to very specific groups. Matthew wrote his gospel to a Jewish audience. Mark wrote his for a Roman audience, and Even though Mark comes after Matthew, Mark was the first gospel to be written. Then we have Luke who wrote his for a Greek audience. And then we have John who wrote his gospel for everyone. It was an open audience, which is why I always tell people who are new believers, start and read in the book of John. It's a very easy book to understand and it's very practical in nature. And it gives us a picture that anyone could understand. So John's main objective when he is writing this book is to let people know that in fact Jesus was the word made flesh. Jesus was the Messiah. And if we only had the synoptics alone, we might think that Jesus' ministry only lasted about a year. But because we have John's gospel as well, we know that it lasted for at least three and a half years because John records multiple festivals that would happen each year. While John was aware of the other gospels that were written because they were all written before his, his was last. First it was Mark and then it was Matthew and then Luke and then John. So he was aware of all the other gospels and his accounts are different in the fact that the synoptic gospels actually go through and record things in order that they happened. But John is very different in the aspect that John doesn't group things in the way they happened. He groups them into topics. So he phrases his book into topics. So the last two months, as I went through the different books that we have done, Romans and James, I went through and broke down scripture by scripture and went contextually, text by text by text. I'm gonna do something different today because of how John's book is written. I'm not gonna break down scripture by scripture by scripture. I too am going to take a topic that I see out of the book of John and teach on that. But it's not one of the topics that is is overt in the book of John. It's more a covert topic that I wanna talk about. 
And I want to first give you a rundown on some of the major stories that you see in the book of John. We see Jesus turn water into wine, and we see his mom kind of pressure him. Can you just go ahead and do this miracle? Because the family needs you to do this. So here's Jesus like being pressured into a miracle. Then we see Jesus who is walking on the water and we see his disciples who are actually afraid of him because they they see him on the water and they think that maybe it's a ghost. We also see where Jesus ministers to a woman at a well, a woman that had a very promiscuous lifestyle. And here he engages her in conversation And his disciples had actually come on the scene and they're wondering why Jesus is talking to a woman and here he is, you know, a rabbi, which was a big no-no. You're not supposed to talk to a woman. Not only was she a woman, but here Jesus is alone by himself talking to a promiscuous woman. And on top of that, not only is he talking to a woman that is promiscuous, but she's what they called a half-breed. She's a Samaritan, which means that she's only part Jew. And Samaritans and Jews did not mix because Jews considered them less than. So here's Jesus breaking all these stereotypes, and his disciples are like, man, what's he doing right now? He's completely going against the status of the day. Then we see Jesus feed the 5,000, another spectacular miracle that occurred. But then everybody who was getting fed tried to make him the king. And he's trying to explain, I'm not that type of king. Just hold on and you'll see what type of king I am. And when he declined that, they said, okay, well, then we'll make you a prophet. They try to put labels on him. Then we see Jesus heals a demon-possessed man. He literally casts demonic spirits out of this man, and the religious leaders chase him out of the city and, and want him to leave. Man, that's, that's kind of hard, all the good he's doing. doesn't seem like he's being appreciated too much. Would you say so? Then he raises a girl from the dead. Surely that will get some accolades, right? He gets ridiculed for raising a girl from the dead. They're ridiculing him to the point where he has to put everybody outside of the room so he can continue to do what God is asking him to do. Then Jesus heals a man that was born blind. 38 years, this man had been sitting by the gate beautiful, the pool of Bethesda, blind. And what happens? Well, let's see. John chapter 5. Because he healed a man It says, for this reason, the Jews persecuted Jesus, sought to kill him because he had healed a man on the Sabbath. It looks like Jesus can't catch a break here. Everything he does, 
the miracles, these incredible signs and wonders. Somebody is there to critique. Somebody is there to give their opinion. And one of the things that really stood out to me is I began to really go through the book of John is that Jesus was never approval addicted. Jesus never cared when somebody called him names. He was literally called Beelzebub. He was told he was blasphemous, which is the only impardonable sin. He was called all sorts of names. He was threatened. He was chased out of town. Religious leaders, those who were supposed to be believers in God, sought to harm him. But Jesus wasn't like us. I mean, he had actually done no wrong in his life where you and I have. So here he is getting chased out of town, getting ridiculed, having death threats made against him for no reason. Many of us, we back up and stop speaking what needs to be said because it made somebody mad or hurt their feelings. Or maybe they stopped following us on Instagram. We lost followers. Or somebody claps back or pops back at us. So we, we get quiet because we, we don't want to hurt anybody's feelings. We don't want to make anybody mad. I mean, I mean, what I was saying was the truth, but gosh, if it's offensive... Maybe I'll just step back. Maybe I won't say anything. Jesus never, ever lived for the approval of man. He only lived for the approval of God. You never saw him cave to people's opinions, and you never see him doubt the mission of God that he was given, and you never see him shrink back you never see him turn another way and say, well, you know what? I really shouldn't go talk to the woman at the well in Samaria because Jews are supposed to have no dealings. And what might people say? You never saw him listening to the crowd. Whether it was those who were his leaders, whether it was those who were his friends, those who were close in. Jesus even begins to teach. Listen, I am the bread of life. And if you want to have life, you're gonna have to partake of me. He'd already told the woman at the well, listen, if you drink of this water that I give you, you'll never be thirsty again. And now he's saying to the crowds, listen, if you partake of me, you're never going to hunger for the wrong things again. You see, approval addiction is hungering for the wrong things. It's needing somebody else to validate who we are instead of the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. We need our boss to approve of us. We need our pastor to approve of us. We need our spouse to approve of us. We need our family to approve of us. And listen, there's nothing wrong with wanting 
somebody to like you. It becomes an addiction when it goes against what God is asking of us. It's not wrong to want people to like you unless it comes at the cost of compromise. So here, Jesus is saying, I'm the bread of life. You've got to partake. Says in the next verse, the Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And in my Bible, the caption says, rejected by his own. That's kind of hard when people you thought were your people are rejecting you. If you are a black conservative, you know exactly what I'm talking about. That was a good chance to say amen. amen. <laughs> Keep reading further. It said, for my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink, in, drink indeed. You can just see the people in the crowd arching their back. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. And as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven. Not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He's saying, listen. That bread that came from heaven that fed our fathers, our forefathers temporarily, this bread that's now standing in front of you that's coming from heaven, this won't just feed you temporarily. This will feed you eternally. You'll live forever. Everyone is freaking out right now that Jesus is saying this. The whole crowd is freaking out. And it says, when Jesus knew in himself, it doesn't say that the crowd complained. It says his disciples complained. A disciple, someone that had been following his teachings. Someone that was supposed to help him spread the word, the gospel, to get it out to the world. When Jesus knew that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, hey, I'm really sorry. I will stop doing that because I know it hurts you. And the last thing I would want to do is hurt somebody that I really care about. Is that what it says? It says that Jesus looks at them and he says, does this offend you? How many of us would have done that? How many of us deleted that post that was true and was right and it needed to be said, but we, we, we got some flack for it. People started jamming up our page. So we delete it. Do you know why they jam up your page? So you'll delete it. So you'll be quiet. So you'll think twice about preaching the gospel again. You'll think twice about posting anything that goes against the narrative of today. They jam you up, so they'll shut you up. And if that wasn't enough, it says, from that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. Do you know how many Christians I have heard say, well, I'm not going to say this or do this because it's offensive to people, and they might walk away 
Jesus was willing to let the truth stand and people fall where they may. The truth is the truth and it's always offensive to those who don't want it. So here is Jesus asking them, does this offend you? Many walked away. Now, at that point, if I'm being honest with you, because of my life and where I have walked through in my life, the tendency for me, now I had to get over this early in the early years of pastoring. We've been pastoring for 30 years. And this was a problem for me. When people walked away from me, it hurt. It really hurt. And I'm not telling you that it's without pain now, but it's pain with a purpose that I'm willing to endure now. In the early days when somebody walked, it would trigger that abandonment that I had as a child. It would get triggered. I would say, oh, no, 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 don't go, don't go. If this was me and people that were my disciples walked away from me, many, I can promise you I would not do what Jesus did. This is what he did next. It says, then Jesus looks at the 12 and he says to the 12, do you also want to go away? You might as well go while the rest of them, who else wants to go? Come on, go ahead and go. For me, I'm going, thank you for staying. When everybody else left, please don't leave. Don't leave me because it really hurts when somebody walks away. It makes me feel bad because I was abandoned as a child and that seed of abandonment is coming back up. Most people don't understand why we get so jacked up when somebody that should walk away walks. It's because it's feeding something. It's feeding something that's not healthy. That's why we return to those old relationships that weren't good, that weren't healthy. Somebody's getting set free. (laughs) Or saying, oh me, one or the other. We go back to those old relationships because it triggered something in us and we're looking to satisfy ourselves with something. That's what approval addiction is all about. It is about satisfying ourselves with the the honey that's coming from someone's lips. But see, Jesus, that's not what he is using as his stick of approval. It's not his measuring tool. He's wanting his approval from heaven. And when you are not concerned about what everybody thinks, it doesn't matter. The 12 left, you're gonna ask them too. You wanna go too? Because if it's just me and God, I'm still fulfilling the mission. When, when we stood up in 2020 and, and uh, my husband, I cringed when he did this. We had already told people, we stood up on the church, we made declarations, and he, he, he gets on, uh, does a FaceTime with all of the staff, and we've got a good number of staff people, and he, sees, he says, uh, by the way, this is the direction we're heading, this is where we're going, this is what we're doing, I'm accepting resignations. I was like, no, don't, you might get some. 
And the Lord reminded me that even with Gideon's army whittled down, if we are all having the same process, the same mindset, we have the same values, even if you have to go smaller, be confident in the fact that God is asking you to do this. But that little tinge of abandonment, and listen, I don't know why you do some of the things you do for your approval diction. Mine was a root of abandonment. It's an orphan spirit. The fact that my mother and father were never there. And so I wanted relationship. I didn't have relationship. And so when somebody walked away, even if they needed to, I remember the early days of the church, there was this jacked up family. Oh my gosh. Because in the early days of the church, you know, when your church is real little, you just get everybody that came from other churches that's disgruntled. And I'm like, oh Jesus, we got some granola Christians up in here, fruity, nutty, and flaky. I'm like, Lord, have mercy. God, help me with this. And this family came, and at that point, I mean, you're counting cockroaches because you're just glad that somebody, that something's showing up, right? And so I'm just so thankful that, that, that they're there, but I'm like, oh, no, our, our church is too small. They're too crazy. When, when, it's, when it's a canoe and you jump up and down, it'll flip it, okay? A cruise ship, you jump up and down on your fine. We were a canoe, And I was like, oh, Lord, these people can't stay. They can't stay. And when they left, I cried. I'm like, oh, they left. And Troy's like, babe, you prayed they'd leave. I'm like, oh, yeah, yeah. See, some of us have to have the gift of goodbye where we are okay with relationships that are no longer suiting the purpose of God on our life. And it doesn't make us like, insecure if somebody walks away we're not chasing down unhealthy relationships maybe God's got something better in mind I love what Peter says to Jesus when he says do you guys want to go away too do you he says Lord I mean where are we gonna go we kind of like gave everything up we don't have anywhere to go see that's the thing When you serve God and you don't have a plan B, you're going to make sure plan A works. But when you've always got this contingency plan, well, I can always run to this if this doesn't, and I always run back here. I am always go here. I've always got this other thing to fall back on, just in case it doesn't, just in case. When we've always got a contingency plan, it's because we've got a trust problem. Got a trust problem. You know... Being honest again, and I'm sure this is just me. I'm sure y'all would not do this. But after everybody else left, and after the religious leaders were trying to kill me, and after I'm being kicked out of cities, the the Jews have all turned on me, and and now my disciples have left, and and now I've got the 12, and they, they stayed. They didn't get up and walk. I'd probably be like, oh, thank you for not leaving. Can I cook for you? Can I bake you some cookies? Thank you for your loyalty. Oh, I'm so glad you didn't leave. Jesus didn't do that. He didn't applaud them for staying faithful to the mission. He expected them to. And then he says something. Oh, Jesus. He says, did I not choose you, the 12? And one of you, 
He's already whittled away everybody else. And one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the 12. Let's get this straight. Let's just understand what's going on here. Jesus is perfect. Jesus heals the sick, opens blinded eyes, walks on water, raises the dead. But the Jews hate him. The religious leaders want to kill him. The disciples walk away. And one of the 12 is a devil. That sounds like a pretty hard day to me. That might be a day I come home crying to Troy Maxwell. Who will tell me, go ask God, go talk to Jesus. You know what that reminds me of? When Dr. Alveda King was here a couple weeks ago, her and I sat on the platform and she said something that intrigued me. So I asked her about it further in the green room. She made a comment where she said that her uncle, Martin Luther King, and her father, A.D. King, who were both pastors, they were both preachers, um, along with their father at Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta. She said that when they started getting out on the front lines and they started speaking up, that everybody tried to get them to stop. And I said, well, wait, you mean like the white communities and people that weren't black? She said, oh, no, the black community. And I said, I need you to explain that a little bit deeper. Like, what do, you, what do you mean? Why wouldn't everybody be fighting for civil rights? Why, why wouldn't anyone that has been through the things that they have been through and seen the prejudice that they have seen, why wouldn't everybody be fighting? And she said, because there's a price to pay. She said, most people want the benefits of the price they paid, but they don't want to pay the price. They want somebody else to pay the price so they can reap the benefits. She said that people all in our neighborhood was getting mad because they'd have rocks thrown at their houses because we were causing a, a stir, because we were out marching. People were getting angry with us. And I was like, wait, 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 the black community? She's like, yes. And I said, I'm just baffled by that. She said, not only that, but, but my grandfather, who was their father, was the pastor of their church and said, listen, y'all need to tone it down because people are starting to not come to church because they're a little bit afraid that something might happen during the service, all the attention we're getting. Can you guys just tone it down? I mean, do you have to go here? Do you have to march here? Do you have to? Can you do this a different way? Could you imagine if they would have toned it down to appease people who didn't want to be uncomfortable? You see, we all love the end results, but very few of us are willing to pay the price to get there because we need this false sense of comfort. And I thought about that and it rocked my world because they told their father, we cannot back up, we cannot stop. They told people in the neighborhoods, this is where we rise up, this is where we let our voice be known because if we were to sit back in a time like this, things will never change. 
And I know it seems a far stretch, but I've got a dream. And when God has given you a dream, you don't walk away from it no matter who is mad at you. And I love that you're clapping because that means that you're going to do that too, right? We struggle with that. We struggle with the fact that many times things that we do that we know are the right thing to do are not going to be pleasing to people. When our job asks us to post a rainbow and we say no, we don't just not respond. Oh, I hope they don't know that I didn't respond. No, we publicly say no because somebody needs to stand up and say the truth. We don't dodge bullets. We stand up and say, I am willing to declare the truth no matter who hears it. Because there is a mess that needs to be cleaned up and Jesus doesn't avoid messes. As a matter of fact, let's go back to that story of the blind man who was blind for 38 years. It says, when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been in that condition a long time, he said to him, do you want to be made well? That's really weird to me that you would ask somebody who has been blind for 38 years, do you want to be made well? You see, here is Jesus again, knowing there's something deeper he's got to confront. There's an issue that has to be addressed. And you'll know by the man's response why Jesus didn't just say, hey, you're blind, healed in Jesus' name. Hey, you need this in Jesus' name. Like he did so many times. He's like, in my name, in my name. This time, he doesn't do that. It's the only time he asks them, hey, do you really want this? He's asking him a yes or no question. And what does the man say? The sick man answered him, sir, I have no man to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus just asked him a question, yes or no. <laughs> what does he do? Probably the same thing he's been doing for a long time, making excuses as to why he's sitting in his condition. Which many of us do the same thing. My husband and I, um, before we started the church, we were in a little town uh, in the mountains of Virginia. My husband was preaching a message and he does a, an altar call for healing. And he prays over this woman. She, she had to have been in her 40s. She was young. But she, she had a walker. And she was hunched over. And her limbs were kind of curled up a bit. He lays hands on her. Prays for her. Declares God's healing power over her. And her back begins to straighten up. Her arms stretch out. She pushed her walker away. And she began to walk for the first time without hindrance of this walker. She was crying. Tears were in her eyes. And there was a Sunday night service as well. So Sunday night comes. The woman comes back. She's back hunched over, back pushing her walker and walking 
like this. And Troy goes over to her and the woman says, I need some more prayer. And out of his belly, he just said, no, you don't. Prayer is not what you need. What you need is not to depend on that disability check because the reason that you're back in this condition is because you want that check each month and that check has become your God. And until that check is no longer your God and you really want this healing, I'm not wasting my time. Thirty-eight years this man had laid there collecting alms. Jesus says to him, do you really want to be made well or do you just want to sit here the rest of your life collecting alms and getting by? Because if you really do want to be made well, you're going to have to take up your bed. I'm actually giving you something to do. Take up your bed and walk. Well, it was on the Sabbath and the religious leaders, they could not get past the fact But here was a man, born blind, documented born blind. He could now see again. All they could focus on was the fact that Jesus did it on the Sabbath. And I think Jesus did it for that man because he has to keep his healing. You see, it's one thing to get your healing. It's another to keep your healing. He had to physically get up the very thing that he had been laying on his whole life, that mat... He now had to roll up and put away. Sometimes we want to carry the mat around with us just in case we need to open it back up and lay back down on it again. Jesus is like, nah, pick up your mat, take it up. That's not even an option anymore. Get rid of it. And then he got ridiculed by the Pharisees. But Jesus saw him later and he found him in the temple and he said to him, see, you have been made well. Sin no more. Same thing he said to the woman in John chapter 8 who was caught in adultery. Sin no more. At this point, pretty much everybody has turned on Jesus except for one little group of people. One little group. John 7 One, and after these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of the tabernacle was at hand. His brothers therefore said to him, depart from here and go into Judea, that your disciples may also see the works that you are doing. Hey, you want to be seen? Why don't you go to Judea? Knowing good and well what happened there. For no one does anything in secret while himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. His brothers were taunting him. Because the very next verse says, for even his brothers did not believe in him. What was going on here? Is they're like, hey, you like want to be this worldwide Messiah? Now's your time. Everybody's gathering for the festivals. Why don't you go now where everybody can go see you, little JJ? (laughs) They're taunting him. And we also know the relationship with his family because recorded in another gospel in Mark, it says when his family heard this, the teachings that he was doing, They set out to restrain him because they said he's out of his mind. So now even Jesus' family has turned on him. Can I ask you this question? At what point does your approval addiction start to play a role in your decision making? 
Who has to turn on you? Who has to walk away? What feelings do you have to feel in order to cave? This could have been a really good point. And he said, well, that's my family. My family is... You know what? I just can't do this thing anymore because my family is upset. My family thinks I've lost my mind. At what point will you stop doing the work of the Lord even if your family turns away? Even if your family is upset? I love Jesus' response in John 4, 34. Jesus said to them, And here is the key to combat approval addiction. Jesus said to them, my food, the thing that feeds me, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Boom, that's it, full stop. No matter what anybody else says, no matter what anybody else does, I'm going to do what God has asked me to do. Would you stand on your feet with me today? I want to ask you this question. What is feeding you? What is motivating you? What is driving you? Who are you trying to please? What needs are you trying to fill that only God can fill? You see, people-pleasing is just another addiction. What's so bad about the fact of not everyone will like you? Did you know statistically 30% of people in your world don't like you? Statistically. But do you know what we do? Probably since COVID, I think that number went up in my my book. (laughs) But what do we do? We spend the majority of our time trying to appease that 30%. And sometimes our family gets caught in it. Sometimes people that we're close to. It happened to Jesus and he was perfect. Do we think that won't happen to us? Do we think that it won't? People say, I'm disappointed in you. Nobody's voice matters as long as that one voice that says, well done, my good and faithful servant. And Jesus said, do you think they won't reject you? They rejected me. At some point, we've got to make peace with the fact that we have a call of God on our life. And whether someone likes it or whether they don't, their opinion of us is none of our business. I care what you have to say. Would you close your eyes and bow your head? I want to ask you this question today. 
Is there something that you need to lay on the altar that has been causing you to shrink back from whom Jesus has called you to be? People's opinions, maybe your own opinion, maybe your own self-talk is the voice that you need to silence. Just ask the Lord right now in this still moment, just ask him, God, why am I not stepping out or fulfilling everything? What fears, what anxiety, what is it I'm trying to get other than just please you? Why do other people's opinions matter? Why am I needing my father's approval? Why am I needing a relative's approval? Why do I need my boss to say something to me instead of God knowing that if you approve of me and the rest of the world doesn't, that I'm still okay? If you know today that there is something you need to lay on that altar today that has been feeding that approval in you other than God, would you just lift your hand? Let's just get rid of it today. Just lift your hand. Just lift it. For those of you online, same thing. Let's lift it up. Let's lift it before the Lord. Let's just all say this together. Say, Heavenly Father, we come before you today because we want nothing to stand in the way of our relationship with you. You paid a price for us and we will walk in the high calling that you have for us. We will not turn to the left and we will not turn to the right. We will keep our eyes on you. You are the author and you are the finisher of our faith. You hold the pen and you write the story. No one else. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in. If you enjoyed this message, we encourage you to spread the word. Share with your friends and family on social media and make sure you subscribe to hear a new message every week. Really love the message? Well, we want to hear from you. Make sure to leave us a review below. Want more Freedom House content? Follow us on Instagram at Freedom House and subscribe to Freedom House Church on YouTube. We hope you are equipped to experience all that God has for you this week, and we'll see you for our next Freedom House Church weekend message.